Welcome to The Screen Queen, the show where I'll be talking about your favorite show or your favorite movie. You'll just have to find out what you're about to know. This is your Screen Queen, your host, Samantha Parrish. Hello there and welcome back to the show. My name is Samantha Parrish and I am the host of The Screen Queen. I am the lean, mean, movie-talking machine. And... I love to talk about movies, TV shows, I love to talk about the trivia, I love to share my commentary, and that is how this show goes. Now this episode in particular is quite historic. The title of this, from what you can see on the title of this episode that you're currently listening to, we're talking about the grand spectacle, the granddaddy of cinema. The movie that broke rules and made new rules, and that is Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I remember as a little girl, I begged my grandmother to shorten the guitar lesson so I could catch the last bit of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. When it was announced that Who Framed Roger Rabbit would be broadcasted on Cartoon Network, I, like, lost my mind. Bugs Bunny was one of the first cartoons that I watched as a little girl, and that became my gateway into animation. Anytime that any of the Warner Brothers cartoons were on, I was hooked. I was, I was there. So knowing that I could get a movie of those characters and the Disney characters, even though eh, Disney just, not really so much, but uh, they sold me on the Warner Brothers cartoons. And... It kind of makes you wonder, well, what took so long to get this movie that has animated characters into an animated network? I don't really, I don't have the answer for that one, but I'm glad they did it because this is a movie that every kid saw when they were younger. And, it, and this was sort of like a rite of passage for every kid in their childhood to watch Who Framed Roger Rabbit. There isn't a way to have movies without mentioning Who Framed Roger Rabbit. There are many classics to talk about with Citizen Kane, Shawshank Redemption, Schindler's List, Aladdin, many things in Disney, many things in Warner Brothers. There's always a part of cinema that makes our pop culture. But what happens if you put it all together? Who Framed Roger Rabbit became that film that tested the boundaries of what can be done in animation? Animation has come a long way from Snow White being made in 1937 and further developing animation. There is even a point in time with animation that made it very tricky to create new budgets and having to make decisions. And in animation, it's a tough industry. It might just look like cartoons entertain, but there's a lot of work that goes into it. There's a lot of research that I did with Who Framed Roger Rabbit that I have gathered over the years, as well as new knowledge that I have learned about Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And there's many things to talk about with this trailblazer in animation and cinema culture. This is Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So the one thing that I want to talk about that's actually, it's a confusingly interesting topic, and that's the casting. Who Framed Roger Rabbit had a lot of people coming up to par to play these certain characters. 
when the word got out about a crossover of Disney and Warner Brothers having that with live action, a lot of people wanted to be in the next movie of Robert Zemeckis. Robert Zemeckis at that point had become a hot name in Hollywood. People wanted to work with him. But you couldn't just have anybody play these characters. This has a perfect cast of actors that I'm glad, and I'm sure everyone else is glad, didn't follow the same typecast. There were people that wanted to play Eddie Valiant, and I don't think I could have seen one of the actors I'm about to name that was originally picked to play Eddie Valiant, and that was Sylvester Stallone. I had just talked about this actor in the previous episode of The Screen Queen, and here he is again. I mean, I love Stallone, don't get me wrong. He makes me laugh, he makes me cry a lot, but he just didn't really bring the magic that could have gone well for this movie that really had the magic brought on by Bob Hoskins. There was also going to be someone different for the role of the villain. Many people had auditioned to be the villain, and one of the top-tier villains, and, you know, you're probably going to not even question why, Tim Curry had given the scariest audition that it scared all the directors and some of the production. He was that good. As much as that would have been beautiful to see, I think, honestly, it would have been terrifying and it probably would have scarred a lot of children. Tim Curry had a lot to play with scarring children. <laughs> this would have just been one more just to add to the roster. <laughs> the movie would not work without the cast that they chose. With having Bob Hoskins as Eddie Valiant, Christopher Lloyd being Judge Doom, and then there's Charles Flesher that became the voice of Roger Rabbit. And then there's the most puzzling part that no one really knows why this credit happened. The main voice for Jessica Rabbit, Kathleen Turner, is uncredited. However, her singing voice, Amy Irving, has the full credit. It's a little bit bizarre considering Kathleen Turner has worked for Robert Zemeckis before in one of his other films called Romancing the Stone. I don't know if this was entirely his decision or if he didn't have a decision and kind of wondered why one of the actresses in his film went uncredited. Of course, you got to make sure Amy Irving has a credit because she was the then wife of Steven Spielberg, so... I guess some favoritism happened there. I guess that's what happened. The one thing I like about this cast is that even though, yeah, they're just actors in a film, they're actors I can see in a film noir film. Given you only see about two to three of them that are your main characters in the live action department, but they give the performance so well and they have perfect chemistry. Everyone looks like they belong in this film noir and I have to really push film noir despite the fact this is mainly known as an animation film this film does not get enough credit as a film noir which goes on to the next point that I want to talk about is this film is a giant time capsule this film already made the mark for being the first and only as of this year 
only time that you do see Warner Brother cartoons and Disney cartoons present in the same frame. However, this was the deal, is that both cartoons from different companies had to be present for the same amount of time. If Daffy Duck was on for just a little bit of time, then that means Donald Duck needs the same amount of time, especially when you watch the opening scene where Eddie Valiant walks into the club to go see Jessica, and you see Donald Duck, and you see Daffy Duck, and if someone disappears in the piano and they have screen time by themselves, then the other one has to disappear to have screen time by themselves in the same amount of time. No one was going to get squelched in the deal. Well, um, <clears throat> Disney did. Uh, if you time it just right, Bugs Bunny does appear eight seconds more than Mickey Mouse in one of the next to last scenes where you have the two of the main mascots of both of the animation powerhouse companies together. So, in the end, Disney lost, which is hysterical. <laughs> there are many things to look at with this film that you can watch this film over and over and over again and find new things to appreciate. For many of the obscure cartoons, many things in the background, inside jokes, and then there's even parts of film noir that make it in this film. There's a part in the scene where Eddie Valiant is going back to his office and he hangs his hat on a Maltese Falcon, which is a reference to the film noir movie, The Maltese Falcon. That's such a nice touch. And the reason I have to go on to say about how there's all these essences of film noir being in this movie is that this basically is the gateway to show kids this once celebrated genre of cinema. Film noir was the big thing back then, and it honestly still does make an inspiration for most of our movies today in Hollywood. And I had to think about this before I did the episode, is it is a brilliant concept of the plot by having the live-action and cartoons plot coming together in an era that cartoons and film noir were the biggest, which was in the 1940s. Animation was starting to get some, some traction, and film noir was just the biggest thing next to westerns. You had two of the biggest genres at that moment, and then having them put together about 40-something years later, it's a nice honor to that moment of cinema history, which was making the path back then for the future of cinema. It's fantastic to see. So it's not only just a film that you can be entertained by it, but you can be educated by it. The next part of this, it's obvious, I have to talk about the animation. There's a lot I've already mentioned for the fact that there are many things that you can see in this film. As much as you can watch it over and over again, you'll find new things to see. And there's a couple of new things that I myself found out recently that I didn't really notice. I mentioned at the beginning of this episode that this film broke a lot of rules and made a lot of rules. One of the rules that was made because of this movie was Bump the Lamp. Bump the Lamp was created as a 
polish mark essentially to go a little bit further for a detail that many people won't notice but it goes a long way when people do which is something to really respect for some of the creative departments there's a scene where Eddie Valiant and Roger Rabbit are in the back and the whole handcuff debacle and a lamp gets bumped and when the lamp goes back and forth the contrast changes for the color on Roger Rabbit's color scheme so it goes from like bright red to dark red because of the fact that the light is um, shining over him which is a nice touch most of the times when you had crossover cartoons back in the 1940s and 50s all of the color palette remained the same there was never a moment that cartoon was given a shade change to acclimate to the environment if it was a darker environment or a lighter environment or in cases like that where a light was going back and forth to make everything go in real time fantastic to see i can't imagine the frustrating part of having to do this there was a lot of work into the animation there were over one million animations created for this movie that part i don't even want to fathom how much that was for what had to be done there's also another part of the animation that i never realized and um (laughs) It has to do with Jessica Rabbit's animation, and she already is known for her unproportionate body and the way that she's drawn. But the animators want to take it a step further to make this very humorous to the idea of making an unproportioned woman. Keep this in mind when you rewatch Who Framed Roger Rabbit. When Jessica Rabbit walks, her, um, uh, Northern Hemisphere bounces the uh, opposite direction. Because Jessica Rabbit's already kind of a human-styled cartoon, they didn't want to animate her like a regular woman and having all of the usual gravitational proportions. By having her, oh god, I can't believe I'm saying this, having her boobs go you know, up a little bit more when she walks, it does give this very unique cartoony look to her that you probably would not see in other cartoons. I guess you could say they had the breast intentions. That's all you can say really about it. This film has an equal amount of hard work and there is so much work that goes into creating a story that people want to remember for a long time and people will never really forget about Who Framed Roger Rabbit. But the one thing that I really want to take the time to talk about is the actor Bob Hoskins. I mean, it's called Who Framed Roger Rabbit. People remember the cartoon that was an amalgamation of several different cartoons put together. But without Eddie Valiant, you don't have the film. Bob Hoskins did so much work for this film to go above and beyond to make this a believable film of a man talking to a cartoon rabbit. He used to get the inspiration for his character to analyze the way that his three-year-old daughter would talk to imaginary friends, which is pretty unique. There have been some fathers in Hollywood that do look to their children for inspiration for having that wonderful imagination. And you can't deny a lot of imagination really does go into this film that makes it beautiful. But there's a bit of a, a funny part to all of Bob Hoskins' hard work for how believable it was. 
his youngest son wouldn't talk to him for two weeks until finally he's like, all right, mate, why are you mad at me? And his son's like, you met Bugs Bunny, you didn't even introduce me. (laughs) It makes me laugh every time I think about that, every time I read that. (laughs) Honestly, if I were him, I'd be pissed too if I didn't get a chance to meet Bugs Bunny. That was my favorite cartoon as a kid. (laughs) I loved that rabbit. There's one more thing that I would like to say about this movie, and it goes back to what I mentioned earlier about the film noir being the the edge and the appropriate atmosphere for the film, as well as how this world building works. I don't think this movie would work without that film noir edge. It sounds mean to say because there has been other films that do work without having a genre undertone and just go with it and be a comedy or be a drama for other films that were created like Cool World and Space Jam and Looney Tunes back in action. But have you ever really seen an animated film that was having live action elements that made you almost piss your pants at the final climactic scene with the grand reveal, which this is a spoiler if you've never seen it. My God, please pause this right now because the plot twist to this film needs to be experienced. I have to make an executive decision for you by making you make that decision, okay? Thank you. When it's revealed that Judge Doom is a cartoon, but you couldn't see it coming a mile away. There were so many twists and turns to who could be the bad guy. And it's strange to have to think cartoons are the bad guys. Cartoons are your suspects. In normal film noir movies, you were automatically enveloped in the eerie atmosphere by having uh, some of the actors and actresses play these like scuzzy, gumshoe, alluringly um, villainous characters that you couldn't trust. And you have to apply that same thing for the cartoons. You don't know who to trust. It's wonderful to see how well the film noir is written into this movie that has the balance of cartoons and live action. But leading up to the grand scene of Eddie finding out that Judge Doom killed his brother and screams it like it makes your blood run through your body it makes your heart go a million miles an hour and you see the absolute look of horror on eddie's face that is remembered for years to come i remember watching that scene at 10 years old and feeling my blood run cold and it still does it to me at 27 years old it doesn't matter who you are how old you are that scene will forever be a timeless moment of a shock factor in cinema and it's something that is animation and live action. When would you ever see that again? And the beautiful thing about that plot twist of a scene is how simple it is. Yes, most of the film has done a wonderful blend of seeing Bob Hoskins talk to cartoon characters, but when you see both of that together, to see evil red beady eyes on Christopher Lloyd... You should see the picture of him without the animation. It's still terrifying. It's such a simple thing that makes this film have a strong edge in a kid's movie. Primarily a kid's hard PG-13 movie. 
well, it's, you know, 80s PG, where there's a lot of things that they could get away with back then, but that was a nice little mature thing to have to show kids back then with having such a strong moment of a reveal where this man just found the killer of his brother. In conclusion, it's already been done of blending animation and live action, but who framed Roger Rabbit did it better and classier and memorable? Who Framed Roger Rabbit is one of those movies that is timeless. No matter how many times you watch it, there's just a few more Easter eggs to discover and appreciate it just a little bit more than the last time you watched it. So now that we've come to the end of the episode, now it is time to find out what the next episode of The Screen Queen is going to be. If you are new here, I have a system where I put everything into a little bowl with a whole bunch of papers that have suggestions on them. So I'm going to mix it up real good. And new suggestions are always added to the bowl. And let's see what the next episode's going to be. Okay, I got pieces of paper. They're just sticking to me. Okay, I'm trying to unfold it somehow. It's just... Oh, fuck! <laughs> no! Why does this happen to me? Oh, no! Oh, God! Oh, this is what I get because I just thought about this movie. Well, I guess it's going to happen. Okie dokie. The next episode of The Screen Queen is going to be covering The Nightingale. That's going to be a heavy, heavy episode. Just giving you a heads up. I feel like this is just going to be an occurring thing where I'll have a very heavy episode and then I'll have a very light episode. So maybe The Nightingale will lead to another lighter episode in the future. Okie dokie. Well, that is a wrap on this episode. Thank you so much for listening. You stay amazing. And I will be back with the next episode. Bye-bye.